Hello and welcome to episode 3 of The Daily Chomp. I'm your host, Regent Keating, and in this episode I will be reading something rather interesting. In my past podcast, I discussed the Atlantean era and cyclical civilizations. However, this time I moved from the realm of the historical to the realm of fiction. My fiction. I do not think because it is fiction, I will move past my field of interest. Far from that. It is a story of beauty and contemplation set amid a idealized landscape of the ancient Mediterranean, which perhaps a bit of the ancient Near East too. Not to mention it summarizes well my ideas about man, or in this case girl's, spiritual connection to her homeland, as well as the structure of the heavens themselves. I shall be reading my short story. I wrote this a rather long time ago, nearly a year ago today, but till today I've had no outlet to share it. If you love beautiful landscapes, beautiful characters, and contemplative prose, come and listen. And a bit of the present as well as ironic as that may seem is in it too. Well, here it is, the audio of my tale, The Tempered Morning, or so I shall call it in this podcast at least. This is for you, my Faustian sleeping beauty, goddess or otherwise, wherever or whenever you may be. Cassia peered down the well and gazed down upon the still and gentle blackness of the water, partially because of the still reeling darkness of the skies, as the bucket rose from it like the sun from the Fodder River. The load was not too heavy or too light, and it went up towards the earth and then the sky with gentle ease, and the water changed from a mysterious obsidian tint like her hair to a perfect clearness. The maiden peered into the water, which just a few moments ago when it resided in the depth of the earth, it seemed like nothing more than something unknown and undefined, something like non-existence. But it had always been residing within the great world's body, and even if it seemed like that till the day she pulled it up, that the water was nothing, it had always been there, and is waiting for that moment all along, though she did not know it or took it for granted. Before untying the bucket, the girl put her soft and subtle lips to its top and arched it back towards her. The water was cold, and even if she did not know where it came from in its spirit, she knew of its darkness. But it was not a foul one, merely something that is subtle and cleansing, and as simple as it is almost noble. And she was refreshed. She stretched and arched her head towards the sky, its grayness broken and now coated in a sweet orange like her dress. She placed the pail down on the rim of the well, and turned and leaned her lean body against the old stones, and looked to stare beyond the landscapes of far-apart trees, thin and white like her, at the long horizon resting upon the ocean, waiting for the sun. When she expected to see the dome of the sacred disk, she was in for a shock, as though the skies go sweet and the bringer of golden joys nor to be found, but then shock turned the tragedy, and she almost wished to be blind as she remembered. Clay lay before the horizon, but not the kind that vibrates along the cliffs, for no cliff lay before the horizon, and why would a cliff lay before if not preceded by the hill? No, it was not the soft clay smoothed along the shores by the craftsman, but the harsh clay ripped from the earth's skin, harshly, for it was not taken to bring comfort, but to bring her under command. The clay formed harsh and foul prisms that numbered in thousands, and rose up above the trees, emitting an inherent but cruel authority. A tear fell from the girl's round emerald eye, and though small and almost perfect in shape, burned her ivory skin like the sting of a bee. She remembered, but it was no use to summon contemplation, for all he was these days was bleak company and elderly weakling. But he resided in the corner of her mind, and spoke in the formless thoughts one has since before they knew speech. She walked from the stone rod of the well, but not onto the path of the dewy earth, 
and began heading west. Now the bucket was heavy, and she strained but did not gripe. As she moved in silence across the dark, long green valley, and towards the numerous those subtle hills, so too did the clouds, the opposite trailing along the sky like content spirits. They were common, but they were too subtle for beauty, and she almost felt jealous. Regardless of the presence of ideas of men or of the gods, the world though orderly to men was nothing but chaos, and even the gods showed that in their myriad of uncertainty and action. If that was so, then why should she not merely sit along the beach as the bricks of clay did, indifferent to the waves and time, all of it nothing? But she could not be, and she was not fully sure if she wanted to be. And the thoughts receded slightly as she rose over the hill and moved towards the small city of tan, orange, and red houses flocking before a great blue stronghold by the sea. There too was a great wall of those hideous bricks, breaking the quaintness of the mundane joy of the place. Bushes now darted the landscape before the settlement, and their darkness reminded her of the well. But the almost sharper forms made her feel a great sense of uncertainty. Excuse me, my child, a loud voice said from somewhere and startled her. She turned and saw from around one of the bushes a bald and plain man with bored eyes and a rusting bronze breastplate, holding a spear with a cheap and rough rock tip. But the spear he struggled to hold, his veins protruding as he held it with four fingers. And he could not do so with his left, as it was encased by a smooth, hollow white stone, tied together into his arm, the strings through holes and just slightly longer than his hands. You are off to the village, are you not? Indeed, she replied meekly, though she knew what he was about. Then where is your cup? Now where are your cups? He said after taking an insightful glance at both of her hands. Oh yes, the cups, she sighed. She had become so used to having to carry the weight with her on a daily basis that she had forgotten about the slight tugging on both of her shoulders, and from beneath the inside of her back of her dress pulled out two black stones with strings like the man's. With defeat and shame, putting one on and tying it nicely, the other clumsily slipping on and tightening already, slightly tied, with her white teeth, which hurt after the task. And there she stood before the man like a fox with paws. You know, a fox can tear with its paws. These were more like the flippers of a seal than one of wrong proportions. She held them up with a sad look on her face, and the man looked at her with annoyed approval. You ought to wear those outside the village too, you know. Be on your way. The man turned away and could not care for a second to help her get the bucket into a stable position and draw raw, ready, heavy, and imprisoned hands. She struggled for some minutes, and by the time it was stable, all the water had fallen out. Perhaps the standing for all the tears she wished to cry. She continued towards the village and returned to the path, which now was cobble, now seemed the square with all its business. But something was wrong today, as it had been days ago and years ago. The place was busy as it has always been, but with a subtle grimness which did not even seem like grimness at all, given its frequency. For a while haunted the place. There was more chaos and often beaten fruits, waste of animals and broken pots and other such things that would riddle the ground. Everyone looked sad, but somehow accepting of it, both things she felt neater. The windows of the flat-roofed houses were dark and cold despite the bright of the morning. And everything was wrong. She strolled for some time, till not very far, about halfway to the shore, she reached the house and entered. Before the door, and intentionally near the glassless square window, stood a guard like the one out on the plains, though bearded and of tawny skin. Somehow with more rage, though a sleeping one, but certainly something worse than the waking one of the other. 
She stumbled down, with somehow with grace, down the short, wide steps and into the room, and was greeted with the heat of the place. Though it was a bright day, it was not a warm one, and the warmth emitting from the stone ovens was almost like a friendliness in a dream. Other girls were working, but they were quiet, and too with agitation. She happily poured the bucket down into a large vessel of grains, which lay before her, and began mixing, though challenging the task was with the gloves of stone. The other girls did not struggle, but this was because the other hand was free, or so they fought. For like the man near the bush, their left hand was covered with one of the cups, and the right hand had been fashioned to resemble a creature's, for it was without the digit that was their index. And though they had it easier in this case, they too struggled with the work. Because of this, she had to learn faster, and learn various tricks to do so, sometimes going into the corner when she could do quickly to remove her cups, though this was very risky to do so. She sat in her usual spot next to a quiet-looking boy, working on tools to use in the shop, though she did not pay any attention to him as he seemed immersed in work with a reddish attitude like the others, and whether she interacted held little relevance on her production. He was certainly distinct, though, and so alone she began the tough work and felt sadness. Like the perspective of the stone, the task seemed pointless, though unlike the stone, she grew greatly tired. The time went fast, but not in a joy, but in a harsh hurry, confused and weak yet stumbling with great speed, like through a rocky landscape. She felt her hands feel beaten and grow sweaty, sticky and burning, and greatly wished to remove the cups. The faces of most would crease up in such dilemma, but though hers was with great sadness, it was as smooth as marble. But though the pain was hidden, it was not hidden from her, and wished to be free of it. The worse it got, the more the memories enroached. She recalled how lonely and stark her world had been in the past few years, how much all she liked about it had died or faded, and how the flame of joy within her had weakened, or sometimes jolted within, but this time in an evil, burning darkness that she did not know, and not know how she had come to know. She hated herself, and she knew others should hate her too, but for other reasons other than her gripes with the cops. Yet she still yearned for comfort, and wished for something too, that knew her pain, and had it too, so that she could know it as well for them. Too focused on her thoughts, she forgot to reason with pain and removed the gloves and began working. Faster now she was free. Several new loaves she made and housed into the oven, the warmth of the place making them into something happy. It felt strange to know her hands, though she was not with the cops that morning, and even stranger to think that such a freedom was not a freedom but was just normal. As simple as that was, and as normal as it should be, that her hands were free. With the small joy she felt boundless, though as untrue that was of a girl, or even a person for that matter, regardless of any circumstances. Though in work she was busy from the world, and though she was not fully happy, she had tempered. Her work looked good, and though vague, there was some sort of pride. But though she could busy herself from the world, the world would not, and could not busy herself from her. No matter what she fought, she was always within, even if in the indefinable darkness of the sleeping and still mind. And her business was broken. Woman! Woman! yelled the guard, now within the shop, almost comically scraping the ceiling as his height betrayed him. Do you know? Do you know? Cassia knew, and she knew even more so. She did not answer the consequences would be dire. Yes, I know. The towering tyrant Fazel, the messenger shine upon his name, orders all souls of Lesos shield their hands in enchanted cups as to protect the souls of the citizens from the spirits of the earth and the spirits of the air. With one outside, if they remove the source of such spirits, the second finger of their holding hand. Cassia gasped, both in tiredness from her breathless reaction of the declaration, but also because she was relieved, 
She had somehow known the whole terrible thing. She opened her eyes sadly, and just as she was about to look towards the man, she felt her shoulder stung, first with a sudden shock, and then with a spreading pain. She collapsed away from it and wept, and stared up in fear, though foolish to look at the man was. What would he think for her to look away? The two cups fell before her, and the man gave a light but harsh kick to her knee. She put the cups on, trying to hurry to do so, but this time rushing only slowing her down. And when she was done, the man growled like a boar before strutting away. She stood up, and with her useless limbs dusted away the grime and dust that had touched the lower half of her dress. She rose in the black company of her sadness and pain, though the pain was physical, was still there, morphed into a dark flower. She hated the man, and more so, she hated the cups, and she hated the forgers of the cups and the commissioner himself, the towering tyrant Fazil, though short and far from a ruler he was. She leaned back in the corner to wood for cups on, and made sure they were as visible as anything else in the place, and now the work continued. But it was slower, and the feeling all around dimmer. For some reason, perhaps, because the confrontation had discombobulated her perspective and she needed to distract him from the fresh bruise, she peered around the room again. The ceiling of rows of old wood beams were high, but not too high, and the walls of a brown and warm cracking clay, the ovens too except the oval, and all along the light wooden shelves lay the bread. This was the whole of the tiny shop, aside from the back, which was more darkly lit than the rest of the place where she sat in her corner making the loaves, and in the other corner was the toolmaker. She stopped from her work and leaned her elbow subtly against the table to allow her to balance her head and rest to more easily gaze upon what was before her. He lounged against the back of the wall, his neck slightly arched forward to his work at the bench, a tall fellow with straight golden wheat color hair. I hate the cups, she remarked in a half-humorous tone to him. He continued working in silence, the clattering of his tools perhaps blocking out her voice. I hate the cups, don't you? She spoke louder. The boy turned towards her with a look of disturbance. Just wear your cups, he spoke in a young voice, bordering on indifference and confrontation. She sighed and looked away, though tried not to break from her smile. You know, every morning I walk through the valley to visit the well, the lonely well they have said long before these spirits came is cursed, and not a single time have the spirits come. Should not they come in a place like that? I have not even felt a whisper of them. The boy seemed to pretend he did not hear her over his work, but he clearly did, and had no interest whether out of disagreement or a lack of caring at all. Cassia sulked back in sadness. The working continued for some minutes until it was nearing the end. She rested again and looked at him again. Only then somehow did she notice how long his legs were, yet they were thin, but not in a weak way, but an elegant way, like the trees of the plains. Though shrouded in long wares, perhaps too warm, she could see their form and could somehow tell without seeing how soft they were. But they were not white, like the tree or her. They were a pinkish peach color, as seen from the mask the flame giver gave him. Though he perhaps thought nothing of it, and like the giver of his face, his eyes were like him. Though small, they had a marvelous and innocent but strong beauty, and an unconscious, perhaps unawoken infinity, and one that was real, not a delusion. But still, when he did not know, or perhaps never would, for though his right hand was free, it too was missing his finger. And how even more tragic, given how delicate and soft his hands were. Cassia dreamed of boys as him since she was at the edge of her childhood, but in her search she could never find one and perhaps had gained an uncaring attitude towards the attainment of such things, though she still fantasized about them. But her passion had surely not left her, for as she started at the boy, her dream was still very much alive. But it was like living in a land that was always stormy, 
the haunt of the Lord of Thunder and Rain, and finally venturing to another island and gazing that evening to finally see the stars, realm of the gods, and all kings past, something one from such a place only heard about in hymns and tales. But though one could see them now, it did not mean they could reach them. They were still nine days away, and days with no ropes to venture they were. Still in a weak effort, she tried to show her purpose with her eyes, turning them into emerald lights shining towards them. Perhaps he would notice how they stared without purpose, or so they seemed. Perhaps he would notice and decipher the gaze, and perhaps he would embrace the light. The day was over, and she rose from her place, her arms still bruised, and now her body very tired. She rose, struggled a coin out of the folds of her dress, and placed it into the basket before the oven, and took a loaf she had baked herself, a loaf that, though of the same ingredients and of the same form, she had somehow, perhaps, only imagined she had created different. Cassia removed this happy loaf and placed it on the bench of the youth just finishing his work. She smiled at him and wished him a good evening, and with indifference he repeated the words at her. Not the words and voice she wished to hear, but better than nothing which she got before. Cassia went down the path out of the village she ventured the other way that morning, and sighed with relief and sorrow as she neared the gate, her poor hands battered and aching, and she looked up at the glittering dome of the night and thought about its heights. Surely there is no way for a girl, nor for a mortal in general, to venture its heights, not unless he was one of those days centuries before, when the blood, gifts, and assistance of the gods was commonplace. But when she thought of the gods, she wondered why they were so. They had always been, and always would be, and she would always be a maiden. But then she thought of the stone's perspective, and all seemed loose, if not in reality, at least in her mind. And in her mind she could climb to the firmament, and see the gods and kings of the better age. But in her mind, too, was her longing, and so too was the boy just a mind. And she realized how feasible her wish could be after all. She was not dealing with the heavens or even the slaves of Fazil, but with her mere souls, such as herself. And what was anything at all, regardless of the others, whomever or whatever prescribed to it? Perhaps the only thing that was real was the pain in her body, but her soul could climb beyond that. And then, when it made it to the top, feel again, and feel better than it had ever before. There was nothing to fear, was there? Perhaps she was lying to herself, or in the brightness of the moment, many of her emotions and memories lay in rest. But for then, she felt it which she had never felt before, and she believed it. And with a hope she had not felt in years, she ventured down into the plain and back to her little home, not wanting to stretch tonight, but to take the opportunity to dream and perhaps see him in the greater uncontrolled imagination, or at least skip the length of the night to awaken the next day and see him again, see him but this time without fear. She had returned to the well and came to it once more, did not to obtain water but to simply contemplate its depths. She remembered the water in the bucket from the morning, emerging out of chaos into the realm of the known, as it had always been destined to be, as the future will eventually come. He was like the water, and though she had never seen him, she was destined to drink him, and he was like chaos, and that would find him sleeping was that ancient infinity. She dreamed of nothing that night, but in the retrospect, the awakening in the morning allowed her. Somehow it seemed as if it was a longer darkness. The glow of the evening before had dissipated from her heart, but the purpose it had filled her with was still there. It ached slightly, though she tried to ignore it by focusing on the purpose still there, the seemingly dormant it was. She had risen early to wander to the stream and bathe in it before her work began. It straggled down a shadow green hill and a thin waterfall and moved among the rocks. There was enough space in between the lie and the flow, and cruel good enough to wash. 
Her white skin somehow became whiter, and her long braids shone like one of the precious stones or crystals stored in the palace of the king of the realm below the waters would eventually struggle to. Her limbs so smooth and soft moved easily in the pocket she bathed in within the stream, and revealed the subtle lean curves of her limbs, stomach, and back, could be seen easily among the similar elegant stones, and her small round breasts hardened in the waters of the early morning coolness as she danced with the father of her daughter. She returned home and put on a garment of white made from fine fabrics, one she had been keeping for years in storage to protect from ruin, but now its day of purpose had come, and she put on her necklace of blue and bronze beads. And when this was all finished, went on her way towards the dreaming well. As before, she took the water from the abyss, however unlike the understanding she had that evening, or even the mystery all those days before, somehow a worse feeling took hold of her as she brought the pail up. A great fear, a great sense of disappointment, failure, and finality. The essence of the end resided in the bucket. Disturbed, she fell back, and the bucket crashed down into the water. Somehow the stick the rope came from fell too, snapping and falling as it went into the abyss. Cassia gasped and shook in fear. The well was old, and as it was cursed, it was scarcely used, especially these days when the fear of spirits was high. But in all her years of knowing it, it had never failed her. She rose and stared down the well, the dark water no longer one from which the unknown lay, but purely the evil unknown. There was no way to get proper water around, and so she made her way to the town, knowing she would have to purchase water to replace it. Even worse than her lack of wealth, to merely handle it small as it was would be a struggle in itself. Hesia arrived at the shop with her sad paws and her bucket of ills. She placed the container by the oven and stood still in sorrow. At least the warmth was so good and the flame so fascinating. Powerful, undefinable, beautiful was the flame to her. And she remembered, and her heart felt warm again too. The maiden peered around, and there he was with his sky, eyes, and tree legs. But he was not in the corner of the day before. He had moved his work to the corner in the front of the shop. Cassia found this rather strange, seeing as though she had paid little notice to him before he was always in that corner. She was certain of it. She disregarded the observation, and prepared the set to work. But this time... She sat on the corner opposite hers that lay at the front, and trying to pretend she wasn't enamored with him, she set to her work instantly. He rose from her chair, and she thought he had gotten up for a second to readjust himself, but he picked up his tools and with a badly hidden malice walked away. Cassia sat there, struck for a second, not even before she had ever really known him, not even before she had ever really spoken to him. He had left her. The flame had left her, and her heart grew empty and cracked. As her hands tightened, she noticed what contained them, and grew bitter. And she knew his cruelness was no fault of her own, but also that there was nothing left to do. His eyes were just false jewels and him a false god. If he had ever had a flame, it had died because of the world and his own weakness. And all that was left was a phantom. Somehow, that was the only true spirit she had ever seen so far, and the world felt bleaker than it had before. Cassia rose and shoved the remainder of her work into the whipping of the flames. Staring away in hate and sadness, she looked towards where his bench was, was and saw a forgotten tool that remained. A long bronze blade, not for slaying but for work of the field and forest, but still sharp and capable, like a small version of the sickle of time, the sickle that had rotted her life away, and her by bringing her to this time which had brought her to total misery. Clasping it with her paws, she struggled it into her robes, and it shone against the flame like for her false hope. And then too, like it went black as it vanished into her pockets. 
She did not try to shield her stealing, and no one noticed at all. Kasia ran out to town, no regard for her work, no regard for the guards. She went running over the waste, down the cold green hill and upon the silent plain. There the well stood, the well which was regarded as cursed and ruinous. And she ruined her cups, smashing them against the rim of the well, then snapping them in half and shooting like ghoulish dragonflies into the ever-changing darkness. She took out the blade and turned towards the walled horizon past the well. Though there was no path to the sea, no ship to steal, somehow she would find a way to sail far away. Thank you for listening to The Daily Chomp. Make sure to listen tomorrow for Ethan's episode. I'm your host, Ruben Keith.